Funeral Orations by St. Gregory the Theologian, translated by C. G. Brown and others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Oration 43. Funeral Oration on the Great St. Basil, Bishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia. Introduction. St. Basil died January 1, A.D. 379. A serious illness, in addition to other causes, prevented St. Gregory from being present at his funeral. Benoit holds that an expression in which St. Gregory says that his lips are fettered proves that he was still in retirement at Selefkia. This is an unwarranted deduction. In this oration, section 2, the saint, alluding to his illness in disparaging terms, alleges his labors at Constantinople as a more pressing reason for his absence, and says that he undertook the task according to the judgment of St. Basil. This implies that St. Gregory went to Constantinople before the death of St. Basil, or that he had then been influenced by his friend's advice and was on the point of setting out, more probably the former, as we may be sure that, if St. Gregory had been still at Selevkia, no reason but physical incapacity would have kept him from his friend's side. His pressing duties at Constantinople and the difficulties of the long journey were the other causes of his letter to St. Gregory of Nyssa, and we know that he suffered from serious illness at Constantinople. St. Gregory left Constantinople in June, A.D. 381, and Tillamont places the date of this oration soon after his return to Nazianzus. Benoit thinks that it was probably delivered on the anniversary of St. Basil's death. The oration, as all critics are agreed, is one of great power and beauty. Its length, 62 pages folio, the physical weakness of the speaker, and the limits of the endurance of even an interested audience, incline us to suppose that it was not spoken in its present form. We cannot well set aside expressions which clearly point to actual delivery, but it may have been amplified later. Funeral Oration on St. Basil It has then been ordained that the great Basil, who used so constantly to furnish me with subjects for my discourses, of which he was quite as proud as any other man of his own, should himself now furnish me with the grandest subject which has ever fallen to the lot of an orator. For I think that if any one desired, in making trial of his powers of eloquence, to test them by the standard of that one of all his subjects which he preferred, as painters do with epic-making pictures, he would choose that which stood first of all others, but would set aside this as beyond the powers of human eloquence, so great a task is the praise of such a man, not only to me, who have long ago laid aside all thought of emulation, but even to those who live for eloquence, and whose sole object is the gaining of glory by subjects like this. Such is my opinion, and, as I persuade myself, with perfect justice. But I know not what subject I can treat with eloquence if not this, or what greater favor I can do to myself to the admirers of virtue, or to eloquence itself, than express our admiration for this man. To me it is the discharge of a most sacred debt, and our speech is a debt beyond all others due to those who have been gifted, in particular, 
with powers of speech. To the admirers of virtue a discourse is at once a pleasure and an incentive to virtue. For when I have learned the praises of men, I have a distinct idea of their progress. Now there is none of us all within whose power it is not to attain to any point whatsoever in that progress. As for eloquence itself, in either case, all must go well with it. For if the discourse be almost worthy of its subject, eloquence will have given an exhibition of its power. If it fall far short of it, as must be the case when the praises of Basil are being set forth, by an actual demonstration of its incapacity, it will have declared the superiority of the excellences of its subject to all expression in words. These are the reasons which have urged me to speak, and to address myself to this contest. And at my late appearance, long after his praises have been set forth by so many, who have publicly and privately done him honor, let no one be surprised. Yea, may I be pardoned by that divine soul, the object of my constant reverence. And as, when he was amongst us, he constantly corrected me in many points, according to the rights of a friend and the still higher law. For I am not ashamed to say this, for he was a standard of virtue to us all. So now, looking down upon me from above, he will treat me with indulgence. I ask pardon, too, of any here who are among his warmest admirers, if indeed any one can be warmer than another, and we are not all abreast in our zeal for his good fame. For it is not contempt which has caused me to fall short of what might have been expected of me. Nor have I been so regardless of the claims of virtue or of friendship. Nor have I thought that to praise him befitted any other more than me. No, my first reason was that I shrunk from this task, for I will say the truth, as priests do, who approach their sacred duties before being cleansed both in voice and mind. In the second place I remind you, though you know it well, of the task in which I was engaged on behalf of the true doctrine, which had been properly forced upon me, and it carried me from home, according as I suppose to the will of God, and certainly according to the judgment of our noble champion of the truth, the breath of whose life was pious doctrine alone, such as promotes the salvation of the whole world. As for my bodily health, I ought not, perhaps, to dare to mention it, when my subject is a man so doughty in his conquest of the body, even before his removal hence, and who maintained that no powers of the soul should suffer hindrance from this our fetter. So much for my defense. I do not think I need labor it further in speaking of him to you who know so clearly my affairs. I must now proceed with my eulogy, commending myself to his God, in order that my commendations may not prove an insult to the man, and that I may not lag far behind all others. Even though we all equally fall as far short of his due, is those who look upon the heavens or the rays of the sun. Had I seen him to be proud of his birth and the rights of birth, or any of those infinitely little objects of those whose eyes are on the ground, we should have had to inspect a new catalogue of the heroes. What details as to his ancestors might I not have laid under contribution? Nor would even history have had any advantage over me, since I claim this advantage, 
that his celebrity depends not upon fiction or legend, but upon actual facts attested by many witnesses. On his father's side Pontus offers me many details, in no wise inferior to its wonders of old time, of which all history and all poesy are full. There are many others concerned with this my native land, of illustrious men of Cappadocia, renowned for its youthful progeny, no less than for its horses. Accordingly we match with his father's family that of his mother. What family owns more numerous, or more illustrious generals and governors, or court officials, or again men of wealth and lofty thrones, and public honors and oratorical renown? If it were permitted me to wish to mention them, I would make nothing of the Pelopida and Cecropida, the Alcmeonides, the Achida, and the Ereclida, and other most noble families, inasmuch as they, in default of public merit in their house, betake themselves to the region of uncertainty, claiming demigods and divinities, merely mythical personages, as the glory of their ancestors, whose most vaunted details are incredible, and those which we can believe are an infamy. But since our subject is a man who has maintained that each man's nobility is to be judged of according to his own worth, and that, as forms and colors, and likewise our most celebrated and most infamous horses, are tested by their own properties, so we too ought not to be depicted in borrowed plumes. After mentioning one or two traits, which, though inherited from his ancestors, he made his own by his life, and which are specially likely to give pleasure to my hearers, I will then proceed to deal with the man himself. Different families and individuals have different points of distinction and interest, great or small, which, like a patrimony of longer or shorter descent, come down to posterity. The distinction of his family on either side was piety, which I now proceed to display. There was a persecution, the most frightful and severe of all. I mean, as you know, the persecution of Maximinus, which, following closely upon those which immediately preceded it, made them all seem gentle, by its excessive audacity, and by his eagerness to win the crown of violence and impiety. It was overcome by many of our champions, who wrestled with it to the death, or well nigh to the death, with only life enough left in them to survive their victory, and not pass away in the midst of the struggle, remaining to be trainers in virtue, living witnesses, breathing trophies, silent exhortations, among whose numerous ranks were found Basil's paternal ancestors, upon whom, in their practice of every form of piety, that period bestowed many a fair garland. So prepared and determined were they to bear readily all those things on account of which Christ crowns those who have imitated his struggle on our behalf. But since their strife must needs be lawful, and the law of martyrdom alike forbids us voluntarily to go to meet it, in consideration for the persecutors and for the weak, or to shrink from it if it comes upon us, for the former shows foolhardiness, the latter cowardice. In this respect they pay due honor to the lawgiver. But what was their device, or rather, to what were they led by the providence which guided them in all things? 
they betook themselves to a thicket on the mountains of Pontus, of which there are many deep ones of considerable extent, with very few comrades of their flight, or attendants upon their needs. Let others marvel at the length of time, for their flight was exceedingly prolonged, to about seven years, or a little more. And their mode of life, delicately nurtured as they were, was straitened and unusual, as may be imagined, with the discomfort of its exposure to frost and heat and rain, and the wilderness allowed no fellowship or converse with friends. A great trial to men accustomed to the attendance and honor of a numerous retinue. But I will proceed to speak of what is still greater and more extraordinary. Nor will any one fail to credit it, save those who, in their feeble and dangerous judgment, think little of persecutions and dangers for Christ's sake. These noble men, suffering from the lapse of time, in feeling a distaste for ordinary food, felt a longing for something more appetizing. They did not indeed speak as Israel did, for they were not murmurers like them, in their afflictions in the desert after the escape from Egypt. That Egypt would have been better for them than the wilderness, in the bountiful supply of its flesh-pots, and other dainties which they had left behind them there, for the brick-making and the clay seemed nothing to them then in their folly, but in a more pious and faithful manner. For why, said they, is it incredible that the God of wonders, who bountifully fed in the wilderness his homeless and fugitive people, raining bread upon them, and abounding in quails, nourishing them not only with necessaries, but even with luxuries, that he, who divided the sea, and stayed the sun, and parted the river, with all the other things that he has done. For under such circumstances the mind is wont to recur to history, and sing the praises of God's many wonders. That he, they went on, should feed us champions of piety with dainties to-day. Many animals which have escaped the tables of the rich have their lairs in these mountains, and many eatable birds fly over our longing heads, any of which can surely be caught at the mere fiat of thy will. At these words their query lay before them, with food come of its own accord, a complete banquet prepared without effort, stags appearing all at once from some place in the hills. How splendid they were! How fat! How ready for the slaughter! it might almost be imagined that they were annoyed at not having been summoned earlier. Some of them made signs to draw others after them. The rest followed their lead. Who pursued and drove them? No one. What riders, what kind of dogs, what barking or cry, or young men who had occupied the exits according to the rules of the chase? They were the prisoners of prayer and righteous petition. Who has known such a hunt among men of this or any day? Oh, what a wonder! They were themselves stewards of the chase. What they would was caught by the mere will to do so. What was left they sent away to the thickets for another meal. The cooks were extemporized, the dinner exquisite. The guests were grateful for this wonderful foretaste of their hopes. And hence they grew more earnest in their struggle, in return for which they had received this blessing. Such is my history. And do thou, my persecutor, in thy admiration for legends, tell of thy huntresses, and Orions, and Ectaeons, 
those ill-fated hunters, and the hind substituted for the maiden, if any such thing rouses thee to emulation, and if we grant that this story is no legend. The sequel of the tale is too disgraceful. For what is the benefit of the exchange, if a maiden is saved to be taught to murder her guest, and learn to requite humanity with inhumanity? Let this one instance, such as it is, chosen out of many, represent the rest as far as I am concerned. I have not related it to contribute to his reputation. For neither does the sea stand in need of the rivers which flow into it, many and great though they be, nor does the present subject of my praises need any contributions to his fair fame. No, my object is to exhibit the character of his ancestors, and the example before his eyes, which he so far excelled. For if other men find it a great additional advantage to receive somewhat of their honor from their forefathers, it is a greater thing for him to have made such an addition to the original stock that the stream seems to have run uphill. The union of his parents, cemented as it was by a community of virtue, no less than by cohabitation, was notable for many reasons, especially for generosity to the poor, for hospitality, for purity of soul as the result of self-discipline, for the dedication to God of a portion of their property, a matter not as yet so much cared for by most men as it now has grown to be, in consequence of such previous examples, as have given distinction to it, and for all those other points which have been published throughout Pontus and Cappadocia to the satisfaction of many. In my opinion, however, their greatest claim to distinction is the excellence of their children. Legend, indeed, has its instances of men whose children were many and beautiful. But it is practical experience which has presented to us these parents, whose own character, apart from that of their children, was sufficient for their fair fame, while the character of their children would have made them, even without their own eminence and virtue, to surpass all men by the excellence of their children. For the attainment of distinction by one or two of their offspring might be ascribed to their nature. But when all are eminent, the honor is clearly due to those who brought them up. This is proved by the blessed role of priests and virgins, and of those who, when married, have allowed nothing in their union to hinder them from attaining an equal repute and so have made the distinction between them to consist in the condition rather than in the mode of their life. Who has not known Basil, our archbishop's father, a great name to every one, who attained a father's prayer, if any one, I will not say as no one, ever did? For he surpassed all in virtue, and was only prevented by his son from gaining the first prize. Who has not known Amelia, whose name was a forecast of what she became, or else whose life was an exemplification of her name. For she had a right to the name which implies gracefulness, and occupied, to speak concisely, the same place among women as her husband among men. So that, when it was decided that he, in whose honor we are met, should be given to men to submit to the bondage of nature, as any one of old has been given by God for the common advantage, it was neither fitting that he should be born of other parents, 
nor that they should possess another son. And so the two things suitably concurred. I have now, in obedience to the divine law which bids us to pay all honor to parents, bestowed the first fruits of my praises upon those whom I have commemorated, and proceed to treat of Basil himself, premising this, which I think will seem true to all who knew him, that we only need his own voice to pronounce his eulogium, for he is at once a brilliant subject for praise, and the only one whose powers of speech make him worthy of treating it. Beauty indeed, and strength and size, in which I see that most men rejoice, I can see to any one who will. Not that even in these points he was inferior to any of those men of small minds who busied themselves about the body, while he was still young, and had not yet reduced the flesh by austerity. But that I may avoid the fate of unskillful athletes, who waste their strength in vain efforts after minor objects, and so are worsted in the crucial struggle, whose results are victory and the distinction of the crown, the praise, then, which I shall claim for him is based upon grounds which no one, I think, will consider superfluous, or beyond the scope of my oration. I take it as admitted by men of sense, that the first of our advantages is education, and not only this our more noble form of it, which disregards rhetorical ornaments and glory, and holds to salvation, and beauty in the objects of our contemplation. But even that external culture, which many Christians ill-judgingly abhor, is treacherous and dangerous, in keeping us afar from God. For, as we ought not to neglect the heavens, and earth, and air, and all such things, because some have wrongly seized upon them, and honor God's works instead of God, but to reap what advantage we can from them for our life and enjoyment, while we avoid their dangers, not raising creation, as foolish men do, in revolt against the Creator, but from the works of nature apprehending the worker, and, as the divine apostle says, bringing into captivity every thought to Christ. And again, as we know that neither fire, nor food, nor iron, nor any other of the elements, is of itself most useful, or most harmful, except according to the will of those who use it, and as we have compounded healthful drugs from certain of the reptiles. So from secular literature we have received principles of inquiry and speculation, while we have rejected their idolatry, terror, and pit of destruction. Nay, even these have aided us in our religion, by our perception of the contrast between what is worse and what is better, and by gaining strength for our doctrine from the weakness of theirs. We must not then dishonor education, because some men are pleased to do so, but rather suppose such men to be boorish and uneducated, desiring all men to be as they themselves are, in order to hide themselves in the general, and escape the detection of their want of culture. But come now, and after this sketch of our subject and these admissions, let us contemplate the life of Basil. In his earliest years he was swathed and fashioned, in that best and purest fashioning which the divine David speaks of as proceeding day by day, in contrast with that of the knight, under his great father, acknowledged in those days by Pontus as its common teacher of virtue. 
Under him, then, as life and reason grew and rose together, our illustrious friend was educated. Not boasting of a Thessalian mountain cave, as the workshop of his virtue, nor of some braggart centaur, the tutor of the heroes of his day, nor was he taught under such tuition to shoot hares and run down fawns, or hunt stags, or excel in war, or in breaking colts, using the same person as teacher and horse at once, nor nourished on the fabulous marrows of stags and lions. But he was trained in general education, and practiced in the worship of God, and to speak concisely, led on by elementary instructions to his future perfection. For those who are successful in life or in letters only, while deficient in the other, seem to me to differ in nothing from one-eyed men, whose loss is great, but their deformity greater, both in their own eyes and in those of others. While those who attain eminence in both alike, and are ambidextrous, both possess perfection, and pass their life with the blessedness of heaven. This is what befell him, who had at home a model of virtue and well-doing, the very sight of which made him excellent from the first. As we see foals and calves skipping beside their mothers from their birth, so he too, running close beside his father in foal-like wantonness, without being left far behind in his lofty impulses toward virtue, or, if you will, sketching out and showing traces of the future beauty of his virtue, and drawing the outlines of perfection before the time of perfection arrived. When sufficiently trained at home, as he ought to fall short in no form of excellence, and not be surpassed by the busy bee, which gathers what is most useful from every flower, he set out for the city of Caesarea, to take his place in the schools there, I mean this illustrious city of ours, for it was the guide and mistress of my studies, the metropolis of letters, no less than of the cities which she excels and reigns over. And if any one were to deprive her of her literary power, he would rob her of her fairest and special distinction. Other cities take pride in other ornaments, of ancient or of recent date, that they may have something to be described or to be seen. Letters form our distinction here, and are our badge, as if upon the field of arms or on the stage. His subsequent life let those detail who trained him, or enjoyed his training, as to what he was to his masters, what he was to his classmates, equaling the former, surpassing the latter in every form of culture, what renown he won in a short time from all, both of the common people and of the leaders of the state, by showing both a culture beyond his years and a steadfastness of character beyond his culture. An orator among orators, even before the chair of the rhetoricians, a philosopher among philosophers, even before the doctrines of philosophers, highest of all, a priest among Christians, even before the priesthood. So much deference was paid to him in every respect by all. Eloquence was his bywork, from which he culled enough to make it an assistance to him in Christian philosophy, since power of this kind is needed to set forth the objects of our contemplation. For a mind which cannot express itself is like the motion of a man in a lethargy. His pursuit was philosophy, and breaking from the world, and fellowship with God, 
by concerning himself amid things below with things above, and winning, where all is unstable and fluctuating, the things which are stable and remain. Thence to Byzantium, the imperial city of the East, for it was distinguished by the eminence of its rhetorical and philosophic teachers, whose most valuable lessons he soon assimilated by the quickness and force of his powers. Thence he was sent by God, and by his generous craving for culture, to Athens, the home of letters. Athens, which has been to me, if to any one, a city truly of gold, and the patroness of all that is good. For it brought me to know Basil more perfectly, though he had not been unknown to me before, and in my pursuit of letters I attained to happiness. And in another fashion had the same experience as Saul, who, seeking his father's asses, found a kingdom, and gained incidentally what was of more importance than the object which he had in view. Hitherto my course has been clear, leading me and my encomiums along a level and easy, in fact a king's highway. Henceforth I know not how to speak or whither to turn, for my task is becoming arduous. For here I am anxious, and seize this opportunity to add from my own experience somewhat to my speech, and to dwell a little upon the recital of the causes and circumstances which originated our friendship or to speak more strictly, our unity of life and nature. For as our eyes are not ready to turn from attractive objects, and, if we violently tear them away, are wont to return to them again, so do we linger in our description of what is most sweet to us. I am afraid of the difficulty of the undertaking. I will try, however, to use all possible moderation." and if I am at all overpowered by my regret, pardon this most righteous of all feelings, the absence of which would be a great loss in the eyes of men of feeling. We were contained by Athens, like two branches of some river stream, for after leaving the common fountain of our fatherland, we had been separated in our varying pursuit of culture, and were now again united by the impulsion of God no less than by our own agreement. I preceded him by a little, but he soon followed me, to be welcomed with great and brilliant hope. For he was versed in many languages, before his arrival, and it was a great thing for either of us to outstrip the other in the attainment of some object of our study. And I may well add, as a seasoning to any speech, a short narrative, which will be a reminder to those who know it, a source of information to those who do not. Most of the young men at Athens in their folly are mad after rhetorical skill. Not only those who are ignobly born and unknown, but even the noble and illustrious, in the general mass of young men difficult to keep under control. They are just like men devoted to horses and exhibitions, as we see, at the horse races. They leap, they shout, raise clouds of dust, they drive in their seats, they beat the air, instead of the horses, with their fingers as whips. They yoke and unyoke the horses, though they are none of theirs. They readily exchange with one another drivers, horses, positions, leaders. And who are they who do this? Often poor and needy fellows, without the means of support for a single day. 
This is just how the students feel in regard to their own tutors and their rivals in their eagerness to increase their own numbers and thereby enrich them. The matter is absolutely absurd and silly. Cities, roads, harbors, mountaintops, coastlines are seized upon. In short, every part of Attica, or of the rest of Greece, with most of the inhabitants, for even these they have divided between the rival parties. Whenever any newcomer arrives, and falls into the hands of those who seize upon him, either by force or willingly, they observe this Attic law, of combined just and earnest. He is first conducted to the house of one of those who were the first to receive him, or of his friends, or kinsmen or countrymen, or of those who are eminent in debating power and purveyors of arguments, and therefore especially honored among them, and their reward consists in the gain of adherence. He is next subjected to the raillery of any one who will, with the intention, I suppose, of checking the conceit of the newcomers, and reducing them to subjection at once. The raillery is of a more insolent or argumentative kind, according to the boorishness or refinement of the railer. And the performance, which seems very fearful and brutal to those who do not know it, is to those who have experienced it very pleasant and humane, for its threats are feigned rather than real. Next, he is conducted in procession through the marketplace to the bath. The procession is formed by those who are charged with it in the young man's honor, who arrange themselves in two ranks separated by an interval, and precede him to the bath. But when they have approached it, they shout and leap wildly, as if possessed, shouting that they must not advance, but stay, since the bath will not admit them, and at the same time frightened the youth by furiously knocking at the doors. Then allowing him to enter, they now present him with his freedom, and receive him after the bath as an equal and one of themselves. This they consider the most pleasant part of the ceremony, as being a speedy exchange and relief from annoyances. On this occasion, I not only refused to put to shame my friend the great Basil, out of respect for the gravity of his character, and the ripeness of his reasoning powers, but also persuaded all the rest of the students to treat him likewise, who happened not to know him. For he was from the first respected by most of them, his reputation having preceded him. The result was that he was the only one to escape the general rule, and be accorded a greater honor than belongs to a freshman's position. This was the prelude of our friendship. This was the kindling spark of our union. Thus we felt the wound of mutual love. Then something of this kind happened, for I think it right not to omit even this. I find the Armenians to be not a simple race, but very crafty and cunning. At this time some of his special comrades and friends, who had been intimate with him even in the early days of his father's instruction, for they were members of his school, came up to him under the guise of friendship, but with envious and not kindly intent, and put to him questions of a disputation's rather than rational kind, trying to overwhelm him at the first onset, having known his original natural endowments, and unable to brook the honor he had then received. For they thought it a strange thing that they who had put on their gowns, and been exercised in shouting, should not get the better of one who was a stranger and a novice. 
I also, in my vain love for Athens, and trusting to their professions without perceiving their envy, when they were giving way and turning their backs, since I was indignant that in their persons the reputation of Athens should be destroyed, and so speedily put to shame, supported the young men, and restored the argument. And by the aid of my additional weight, for in such cases a small addition makes all the difference, and, as the poet says, made equal their heads in the fray. But when I perceived the secret motive of the dispute, which could no longer be kept under, and was at last clearly exposed, I at once drew back, and retired from their ranks, to range myself on his side, and made the victory decisive. He was at once delighted at what had happened, for his sagacity was remarkable, and being filled with zeal, to describe him fully in Homer's language, he pursued in confusion with argument those valiant youths, and smiting them with syllogisms, only ceased when they were utterly routed, and he had distinctly won the honor due to his power. Thus was kindled again, no longer a spark, but a manifest and conspicuous blaze of friendship. Their efforts having thus proved fruitless, while they severely blamed their own rashness, they cherished such annoyance against me that it broke out into open hostility and a charge of treachery, not only to them, but to Athens herself inasmuch as they had been confuted and put to shame at the first onset, by a single student, who had not even had time to gain confidence. He, moreover, according to that human feeling, which makes us, when we have all at once attained to the high hopes which we have cherished, look upon their results as inferior to our expectation. He, I say, was displeased and annoyed, and could take no delight in his arrival." He was seeking for what he had expected, and called Athens an empty happiness. I, however, tried to remove his annoyance, both by argumentative encounter and by the enchantments of reasoning, alleging, as is true, that the disposition of a man cannot at once be detected without a long time and more constant association, and that culture likewise is not made known to those who make trial of her after a few efforts and in a short time. In this way I restored his cheerfulness, and by this mutual experience he was the more closely united to me. And when, as time went on, we acknowledged our mutual affection, and that philosophy was our aim, we were all in all to one another, housemates, messmates, intimates, with one object in life or an affection for each other ever growing warmer and stronger. Love for bodily attractions, since its objects are fleeting, is as fleeting as the flowers of spring. For the flame cannot survive when the fuel is exhausted, and departs along with that which kindles it, nor does desire abide when its incentive wastes away. But love, which is godly and under restraint, since its object is stable, not only is more lasting, but the fuller its vision of beauty grows, the more closely does it bind to itself and to one another the hearts of those whose love has one and the same object. This is the law of our superhuman love. I feel that I am being unduly borne away, and I know not how to enter upon this point, yet I cannot restrain myself from describing it. 
For if I have omitted anything, it seems immediately afterwards, of pressing importance, and of more consequence than what I had preferred to mention. And if any one would carry me tyrannically forward, I become like the polyps, which when they are being dragged from their holes, cling with their suckers to the rocks, and cannot be detached, until the last of these has had exerted upon it its necessary share of force. If then you give me leave, I have my request. If not, I must take it from myself. End of Oration 43, Part 1